All right, Romans chapter 10. This is part two from uh, last week's message. The title is Gospel Confession. We're going to read verses 1 through 14. Romans 10, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they be saved. I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses writes of the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith says this. Do not say in your heart, who shall ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who shall descend into the deep? That is to bring Christ again from the dead. But what does it say? What does the righteousness of faith say? It says the word is near you, even in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we proclaim. Because if you confess the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth one confesses unto salvation. The scripture says, everyone believing on him shall not be put to shame. For there is no difference both Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call on him. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe on him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without preaching? And how shall they preach unless they are sent, as it is written. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of grace and bring glad tidings of good things. Now, last week, we covered a lot last week, and these two messages do go together. I can't re-preach last week's message. There's no time. But last week, we read the same text that we read now. And we went back into the last chapter before that in chapter 9 and read verses 30 through 33 and looked at some of those things in its context. Then we went to Romans 1, 16 and 17 and talked about that vital ingredient that you cannot have missing from the gospel, the righteousness of God revealed. We talked about what that was. That's the very righteousness of Christ that he has merited and earned by what he did as he lived here on earth, his person and his work, the whole merit of his work is establishing a righteousness that is to be charged to the account of his people so that they can be declared righteous. So we explain what that was in detail. That's the power of God into salvation. And that's why it's the power of God into salvation, because in the gospel is that righteousness of Christ revealed in it. 
Then we went to Romans 3, verses 21 through 31, and we showed the person and work of Christ, that action, how that he performed the gospel. It's all over the scripture, but we stayed in Romans for all these things. How that in that action that he fulfilled all the conditions and the requirements of law and justice that the holiness of God required and the righteousness of God demands. So here's a couple things I want to say again that are important to tie these two messages in. And uh, if you haven't listened to last week's message, go back and check it out. These two things vitally are connected together, part one and part two. We talked about the scripture twisting of today's religion out there, how that it is mainly in, in two areas of what the gospel is. The gospel is rarely defined. We defined it last week and we'll talk about it some more this week. What the gospel is and how a person is saved. Those, I believe, are the two most perverted things that are twisted from the scripture in false religion. That's how false religions are developed because of those two things. Also mentioned that this section of Romans, especially uh, verses 8 through 13, those are the ones we're going to be primarily concentrating on today, I believe is the second most misinterpreted text in the scripture right behind John 3.16. So because of time, we're going to be talking some gospel through here, do we always do, but it won't... It, we can't cover as much as we did last week. We got pretty specific, pretty detailed, and it took, you know, 50-some minutes. So can't bring all that back this week, but we're going to integrate some of that in there as we go along. Now, let me make this statement. Salvation is completely, 100% unconditional on the part of human beings. It's unconditional. That's what grace is. All the conditions of salvation were completed and finished by the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that is the good news of the gospel. The fact that it is done outside of ourselves and it's something that's finished. It's an objective truth outside of ourselves. We can't affect it. It is an unchanging eternal truth. What has happened there? The, the everlasting gospel, the gospel of grace, the gospel of Christ, God's gospel, of free and sovereign grace. That's it right there. That it is something done by Christ that we can't affect. And faith or believing is how we enter in consciously and have the awareness of knowing God. And entering into this communion and union with God and this relationship whereby we have been reconciled to God. We are not enemies anymore. Now we are God's friend and we have the mediator Christ who has done this work. And we spend the rest of our life living by faith, by the power of the Spirit. And this gift of faith that brings us into this is not an offer, but it is a gift that is worked in the person powerfully by the Spirit of God through the means of the gospel. With every sentence of things that we have said so far, we've done messages on, hour-long messages on each sentence. So I hope you're catching all this stuff as we go along. Now, this message should expose a lot of problems that people have a bias, a preconceived notions that they read into this text in Romans 10. But before we do that, we want to I just want to show and we've done this several times before. There are two basic views of what Christ did while he was here on earth. 
There's several views, but these are the basic ones that are boiled down. The first view is a false view. It's a lie. This actually didn't happen, but yet this is the most popular view of all of religion under, quote-unquote, Christianity. This is the popular false view that the majority of so-called Christians believe. That Christ died for all people without exception, and he renders them savable, potentially savable, based on future conditions that are fulfilled by them. And these most popular conditions, we're going to talk about them in this message, has to do with this, this system of how one is saved, and we're going to be talking about it. That's the false view. The second view is the true view, the true gospel, and we talk about it here every week. We talked about it last week. The true gospel is how that Christ accomplished redemption in a sufficient, all by himself, nothing to add to it, effectual, it works, it's effective, finished, it's done, it's a historically completed thing that's done already, sacrifice of himself as he fully satisfied God's law and justice and established a perfect righteousness that is to be charged to the account for the justification of his people. And these people are the sheep, the elect, his chosen, the remnant, on and on, all the names, the synonymous <coughs> names and terms. And that is who he was the sacrifice, the substitute, and a representative for as he did that work, that finished work. So those are basically the two views. The first one should be easy to spot, since most of us here believe this, the second explanation, the true explanation of the gospel. As we see someone who is, in the first, the first <coughs> description, the false view, that he rendered people merely savable based on conditions they fulfill, we should be able to see, spot a mile away. That's a conditional, a, uh, a works righteousness, at best, a grace plus works righteousness, which is subtle, more subtle than just saying, I believe in works for salvation, because you can easily say salvation is not by works. But there are not many verses that can go to and say that if you add works to grace, then grace is no longer grace. There's one in this uh, next chapter, Romans 11, 6. We only need one, but there are other verses that imply that throughout the scripture that grace must be 100% pure grace and not any contribution no matter how small it is coming from us. Now look at verse 8 in our text. We're going to work our way through here and try to keep it short. Talking about the righteousness which is of faith, what does it say? Verse 8, what does it say? The word is near you even in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith that we proclaim. That's just simply saying the gospel that we preach. Several cross-references we could go to, talking about that form of doctrine that you believed, Romans 6.17, that after you believed that doctrine, you were freed from sin and became servants of righteousness. So Paul here, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is establishing over and over and over again that the gospel is the means that God uses to convert the soul to Christ. We saw that last week in um, Romans 1, 16. 
the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And there are several other verses scattered throughout the Bible. Also, we looked at faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So verse nine, let's, let's look. And this is the this is the kind of, we're going to start stepping into the controversial part. Now, this is vital that we see what what everything here is saying, because I myself was deceived in this old system. And I know plenty of people right now that I know and care for that are deceived by this. And I guarantee you, people that are hearing this being recorded, when they hear it, they'll say, I, I had no idea that that's what that meant or didn't mean. So this is important. This is a cover-up. <laughs> I want to say it's a conspiracy that this is not exposed. Verse 9, Romans 10, 9. Because if you confess the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Now, I want us to look at this word confess. I want to talk about what it is and what it's not. The word confess here, because if you confess the Lord Jesus, this word is made up of two original Greek words. One is homo and the other is logos. Homo means same, right? We know if you talk about a homosexual, it means they like the same sex. So homo logo. The word logos means word. We studied that in John chapter 1. Talk about in the beginning was the word and the word was God. Word was with God. It's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. So here we see these two words put together. And let's look at it in a sentence. Because if you say the same word, that's what confession is. If you say the same word concerning the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart, that God has raised him from the dead, then you shall be saved. This has to do with agreement or assent with our mind, right? And faith, we know, is a work of God in the heart or the mind. So God works in the mind powerfully. We saw how powerful, it's not talked about much. In Ephesians 1, I think it's in verse 14 through 18, somewhere around there, that talks about, the, the power that it takes to grant faith and work faith in the person is the same power that it took to raise Christ from the dead. Now, that's some power. And you had nothing to do with it. That is the power that's worked in the person to cause them to believe. So that power causes a person to see the truth and to assent to it, to agree to it, and to say the same thing about it. This is part of faith. This is what faith is. There's some redundancy here. If we confess the Lord Jesus and believe in the heart, these things are so connected. So we say the same thing about Christ that Christ says about himself. We say the same thing about Christ, what the Father has said about him. We say the same thing about Christ, what the word of God testifies about Christ. We say the same thing about Christ that the Holy Spirit bears testimony concerning. We're in agreement. We know the Trinity's in agreement to who Christ is, the purpose of the gospel, what is accomplished in the gospel. We enter into 
agreement by the power of God. That's what this confession and this faith involves. In other words, we don't disagree and we don't say something different. I mean, you got to go that far and explain that. That's, that's not going out on a limb, right? People say, well, I, I don't understand. How come this, this one denomination over here, they're, they're saying these, they're, they're naming the name of Christ, but yet their doctrine totally disagrees with our doctrine, which is according to Scripture. These things are two opposites and they can't be both right. But yet I feel like to be loving, I have to say these people are saved, but yet they don't believe the gospel. Well, you're in an Alice in Wonderland world. Get out of there. The scripture says confession is saying the same thing about Christ. Who this Christ is and what he did. That's the gospel. It's an acknowledging and agreeing. This is the, this is the idea where we say amen. Yes and amen. You're agreeing with what God says. Now, confess here does not mean asking for forgiveness. That is the, that is the misconception of this system of how people think that they are saved by the condition of asking for forgiveness. That's not in Scripture. It's not here. It's not, not really any place else as a condition for salvation. First of all, in the introduction, we said there's no conditions for salvation, that Christ fulfilled all the conditions, and that's the good news of the gospel. Well, here, what I think a lot of times Protestants and Baptists and non-denominational people have maybe perhaps taken some type of a system. They've pulled out parts of the Roman Catholicism system and have applied it to the quote-unquote evangelical church. And they've put all the holy stuff up front, right? they got the pulpit. It's usually giant, you know. They've got the kings and queens chairs in the back, and you've got all this pomp, and uh, you've got the so-called altar up here, and you, you call people down. You say, this is where this is done. You, you get saved up here, and the preacher, he, he almost acts like a priest, and, and this is the system. And if it's not in a building that's set up religiously like that, it can be in the minds of people as the dude is on TV or on the radio, and he sets that up for them to make a religious move to do this type of a confession. Set up a system where he says, all right, confess, or in other words, he says, ask, just ask Jesus to come into your heart and ask for forgiveness, and you'll be saved. Nothing in here says that. It does not say it. There's nothing in here that says that. Zero. So it's not a, a makeshift Protestant confessional booth where you ask for forgiveness or start naming your sins. You don't have time. You don't have time to name your sins. You don't even know all your sins anyway. You can't remember all the sins you've committed. Here it says, not asking for forgiveness or naming your sins. It says, if you confess the Lord Jesus, this person, the person of the gospel, you say the same thing about him who he is and what he did. That's what this is all about. Let's not jerk this out of its context. All right, first question. Which Lord Jesus? Which one? There's several today. Historically, there have been several in the minds of people. There are counterfeits out there, false Christs that are being taught by the majority of Christianity. You can follow along if you want to. I just want to prove this out real quick. 2 Corinthians 11, 
We're going to go to like three texts, that, that two or three texts that talk about this. I always bring this up, but rarely do I go for the proof text showing where these are. And you ought to memorize where these are when you're dealing with people. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, look at verse 2. Paul says, For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy. He, he cares for these people. He's concerned, really, who they're listening to is what he's getting at. Because I espoused you to one man, speaking of Christ, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled, remember we looked at that word beguiled, talking about deception, we looked at that a few weeks ago. As the serpent deceived Eve in his craftiness or subtleness, I'm concerned about your thoughts should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Now this word simplicity means singleness as compared to double. We've heard, we've read scripture where it talks about the double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And it talks about foolishness and being double-minded. We're talking about confessing the Lord Jesus. This Christ alone is what I'm getting at. Christ alone is what we're looking for. The simplicity that is in Christ. Now, it's not Christ plus something else, a conditional asking for forgiveness of sins, a conditional saying a prayer, a conditional being baptized, a conditional keeping certain laws, dietary laws, certain days, different ceremonial things. It's, it's, it's none of that. It's the singleness that is in Christ. You're complete in Christ. He's saying these people had double mind. They had their mind on Christ and their mind was split. And the true Christ won't allow splits. It's all or nothing. Verse 4. For if indeed the one coming, he, he's talking about these others that maybe these people have been exposed to that are hearing messages from other people. And I myself worry about this too. You know, we're pretty free here, you know, to, I don't have any rules like don't listen to anybody else but me. You know, I have people that I recommend you listen to. And most of you are sharp enough that you have, you can kind of wander around and listen to people and then a lot of times you'll report back to me and if you find somebody good, you'll tell me. If you find somebody that's off, you'll tell me too. And, um, but this is a, this is a danger of, of people in, in the church, in churches, to being beguiled or deceived subtly by other preachers that don't care for your souls. And that's what Paul was saying here. I'm jealous of these people that are lying to you. We've had some people leave here. They've been caught up in heresies that all of you here are against. It's happened over the year. So it talks about this one, these others that are coming, proclaims another Jesus whom we have not proclaimed. Or you've received another spirit which you did not receive. Or another gospel which you never accepted. And then he goes on to say, says, you might well endure these. He's kind of saying, I don't understand why you're putting up with these guys. These other people that are lying to you with another Jesus, another spirit, another gospel. I'm jealous because I know the implications and the results 
of what this will end up being if you end up falling for another Christ, another spirit, another gospel, and you persevere in that lie and die in that state. It's proof that you that's what you believe and you don't believe the truth of the gospel. You have you are an apostate. You've left the faith. If you go in this direction is what he's saying. He says the same thing in uh, Galatians chapter 1, just a few pages over. Galatians 1, you're very familiar with this one. I marvel, in verse 6, I marvel that you're so soon being removed away from him who called you into the grace of Christ to another gospel. Notice this, which is not another, but some are troubling you and desiring to pervert the gospel of Christ. So when you pervert the gospel, it becomes another gospel, which is not another. Why he says it's not another gospel is because only the gospel is good news. These people are bringing in a quote unquote gospel that's not good news. It involves conditions and works and laws. And then he goes, he, he, he goes further here in verse eight. Even if we or an angel from heaven preach a gospel to you besides the one that we originally preached to you, the true gospel. And it says, let him be accursed. He includes himself. He says, we or an angel. Paul, maybe his inner circle of buddies that traveled with him. Even if he says, even if I, me, if I preach, the, if I somehow go astray and preach a different gospel, let me be accursed because there's only one. And all these others are not true gospels, which are the power of God and the salvation. He says it again. He's redundant. He almost repeats the same thing in verse 9. As we said before, now I say again, if anyone preaches a gospel to you besides what you've received, the one originally, let him be accursed. The word accursed means it's anathema. It means damned, condemned or damned. In other words, this is, he's saying this is not a secondary issue. This is what he, verse 6 is where he started this, right out of the gate, because it was a problem. And we know in those churches of Galatia there, in that area, there were false teachers that, that slowly crept in by stealth, adding to the work of Christ to make salvation complete by dietary laws, keeping of certain holy days, and by the, the rite of circumcision. In order to be righteous, fill in the blank today. Things that you can add to the work of Christ that people think makes them complete in their righteousness. The reason they reject the gospel is because they don't see the, a completeness in the work of Christ. They feel that they must do something to finish or complete his work because it's insufficient. That's why when I always talk about the death of Christ, I talk about the sufficiency in and of itself to do the saving, the effectualness of it, and the finishedness of it. It's sufficient, effectual, and finished. And this bars people from adding things to it, right? So to pervert his person or his work, either one, is to turn a message into the false gospel. It is to not confess the Lord Jesus. 
It's to not say the same word about the Lord Jesus. It's to say a different word about the Lord Jesus. 1 John 4. Here's one that specifically deals with his person. That has to do with him coming in the flesh. It's vitally tied to his work because he couldn't do his work if he didn't come in the flesh. 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but try or test the spirits and see that they are of God, because many false prophets have gone into the world. By this, you know the Spirit of God, that every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Every spirit that does not confess the word confess again, say the same word that God says about it. That Christ has come into the flesh is not of God. And this is the Antichrist you heard is coming. And listen to this, even now is already in the world. The spirit of Antichrist is already back then in the world, which means the spirit of Antichrist is here and now in the world with these lies concerning not confessing the same word about Christ, who he is and what he's done. And then Second uh, John 1, this is just one line here, one, one verse. Second John 1, 9 says, Everyone transgressing and not abiding in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ, he has both the Father and the Son. So that's what Paul was saying there in Corinthians. He was saying, look, I'm concerned with a godly jealousy of the people that I've cared about and helped in the gospel. And you're listening to these other people that are trying to draw you away and make you double-minded and have you come away from Christ by doing things to add to your salvation. And this is a false gospel, a false Christ another spirit, the very spirit of Antichrist, as John said here. Now, back in our text, it says, because if you confess the Lord Jesus, and then it goes on to say, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Now, as we have said many times before, believing in your heart is believing in your mind. I mean, where else are you going to believe? Are you going to believe in your belly. Sometimes, like the word heart is the Greek word cardia. We know this heart that pumps blood here, the, the idea of cardiac, have a heart attack, it's cardiac arrest. Sometimes we see other words in scripture like bowels. And you look at these words and, and it, it involves body parts that are like from here to here. The spleen is involved if you look at some word studies and stuff. But this is just a metaphor for the center of man. You talk about the heart of the issue, right? It's the bullseye. It's the middle of what we're talking about, right? What operates man? It's not the physical heart. If the physical heart dies, he dies physically. But this right here is not a physical belief. It's a spiritual belief. It's an understanding with your mind. And this is where faith takes place. This is where God creates faith in the mind by, we know, giving a new mind. The promise of the new covenant is to take out the heart of, of stone, remove that heart of stone and put a new heart in there. And this is spiritual language concerning the mind. 
He convinces our minds how to think what we think of Christ. What we think is what we say. When we think the same thing about Christ, we confess the same thing about Christ. So it's not mystical. It has to do with the mind, the new mind that God gives. Someone say here that faith goes beyond knowing the truth of the gospel by God's spirit. I'll give you two quotes. Here's one by John MacArthur. This is on our website under the Lordship Salvation page. This is from his book, Hard to Believe, page 93. And how he states this, I mean, I'll show you as we go along. He says, quote, salvation isn't the result of of an intellectual exercise. Now I'll stop there and I'll go back and read that again. Now, we don't believe that an intellectual exercise is a condition for salvation. We don't believe that. But when God gives faith, there definitely is an intellectual exercise involved by the power of God. We don't blindly leap into salvation and say, I believe in something I'm not understanding. Oh, I feel so good about it. It doesn't make sense. We know what we believe. So he says, salvation isn't the result of an intellectual exercise. It comes from a life lived in obedience and service to Christ as revealed in the scripture. It's the fruit of actions, not intentions. There's no room for passive spectators. Words without actions are empty and futile. The life we live, not the words we speak, determines our eternal destiny. Unquote. John MacArthur, hard to believe, page 93. Conditions. I mean, all I heard was screaming, conditions, right? All right, here's another, his buddy, John Piper, from The Pleasures of God book, page 288. Quote, the question to answer, what is faith? It is the most basic one in the whole controversy. It is not a simple mental assent to facts. It is a heartfelt coming to Christ and resting in him for what he is and what he offers. This view of faith will inevitably wean a person away from sin because faith is a resting in what Christ has to offer, namely the pathway to life, unquote. All right, so there are some things there that go beyond or past agreement, belief in the truth. There's something more, they say, that needs to come out of it. And they start going towards some type of a, uh, notice MacArthur said, a heartfelt, as if he starts to separate the heart and the mind. And he, Piper said, it's not simple mental assent. But yet, when we talk about the gospel, he says, the gospel's simple. Why are you making it so hard? <laughs> right? God changes the mind. He gives the new heart. So faith is believing with the heart. That is knowing and agreeing with the truth. We know that contained in the revelation of truth, the believer is given an understanding. Right? I'll read this verse. I'll read it several times throughout the year. 1 John 5.20, it says, And we know that the Son of God has come... And he has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true. And that we are in him that is true. In his son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and everlasting life. We read in John 17, 3. What is everlasting life? It's knowing God. Eternal life is knowing God. And in it, John says, 
that we're given an understanding to know him. We don't merit knowing him by our own understanding. Now, if this is what some of these guys are saying, I would agree. But if you're in a context, they're saying more than that because they talk about these actions that result in for future and final salvation. That's what Piper's camping on nowadays, which we're warning people about. So anything that goes beyond faith, knowing, understanding, agreeing, believing the truth, it would have to involve either empirical knowledge, which means sensory knowledge by our five senses, you know, seeing, touching, feeling, smelling, hearing. We don't gain knowledge by that type of evidence. We don't walk by sight. We don't live by sight. And the only other thing would be an emotional thing that eclipses our minds from understanding or seeing the truth. So besides not being driven by physical senses, faith is not driven by emotionalism. Faith is not based on feelings. Now, here's the question. Will God giving faith affect the emotions? Uh, did me. <laughs> Still does. <laughs> Still does. But that's not what drives my faith. And I don't have assurance based on my feelings. Right? We can't do that. That's dangerous. Mood assurance. That ain't going to work. Does God-given faith affect our will? Sure it does. Sure it does. Our will initially, first of all, is changed to come to him because we're not willing to come to him until he gives us a new heart. And then as far as serving him, this faith affects our will. But the power of faith affects our will and affects our affection, our emotions. But it doesn't drive our faith. Verse 10 of our text with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth one confesses unto salvation. Here again, you could just as well substitute the word mind. God-given faith, given to in the mind, worked in the mind, which this uh, modern King James is using heart. Most versions use heart. And this is the new heart. One's transplanted, one's taken out, and one's given. So that we're, this is the new birth. Faith comes as a fruit of the new birth. Except a man be born again, he cannot see spiritually the kingdom of God. Christ said you got to be born again. So within the new birth, faith is created by the power of the Spirit through the means of the gospel, powerfully worked in the mind, and one believes under righteousness. They believe and agree what it took to establish perfect righteousness they believe the gospel concerning Christ, who is the Lord, our righteousness. And there is that connection there. There's that uniting to Christ by faith. And you are in the family of God. And you are justified by Christ's righteousness charged to your account. This is what we consider salvation. When we talk generically of salvation, one has passed from death unto life spiritually. They are no longer spiritually dead. They are no longer in unbelief. For the scripture says, everyone believing on him shall not be ashamed. So they're not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. There's no difference between the Jew and Greek. The same Lord overall is rich unto him, call upon him. 
He's not biased. The Lord Jesus Christ is not biased. Christ took down that middle wall that separated Jews and Gentiles, and the gospel now goes out to all Jews and Gentiles, all cultures and colors and so on. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, I just want to finish off with this. And we ran out of time. This is really the main thing I want us to see. Verse 13 and, and the other verses that say the same thing are not conditional. We don't call on it. Sort of wants to see. We don't call on the name of the Lord in order to be saved. Now, somebody says, well, that's a pretty bold statement. You've said a lot of things that I don't know about that. Well, the next verse explains. This verse should help us out. Understand this. How then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? If you can understand that question, you can understand that salvation takes place before one calls upon the name of the Lord. Calling upon the name of the Lord is just the natural spiritual instinct, the flow, the fruit of faith. When we talk about salvation, we always, in a conversion experience, we always look to faith. Do you believe? Some people, you know, it's, I've never heard anybody said, uh, I don't know, but I've called on the name of the Lord. The focus is not on calling on the name of the Lord. Always. It's on, do you believe? What hinders me to be baptized? I don't know. You called on the name of the Lord? Now, if you believe with all your heart, right? The whole book of Hebrews is talking about unbelief versus belief. And he didn't camp out on, hey, have you called on the name of the Lord yet? Because you know that's the condition before you can get saved. That's the one sin that's talking about in chapter 10, 26. If you sin willfully, you haven't called on the name of the Lord. You, you, you see what I mean? It's, it's faith versus no faith. Salvation is focused in on the Lord Jesus Christ believing on him. Faith in Christ. He just spent like nine chapters dealing with faith in Christ. All that it took to perform the gospel. These are the things that you believe. And then here at the end, he quotes an Old Testament quote about calling on the name of the Lord. Calling on the name of the Lord is not a condition. It does not save you. It's saying that those that are saved will call on him because they've already believed. That's the point. Don't miss that point. That is the point. They've already believed. Now, we know that they've believed because spiritual life has been imparted to them. They've been quickened. They've been regenerated. They've been given spiritual life in order for them to believe because before that they couldn't. Now, Paul takes care of that in different areas. He didn't insert it right here in verse 14, but at least he puts this in here. And these things in verse 14, really, this first sentence undoes that whole conditional system that's been overwhelmingly popular for the last 150 years. People say, you, don't, you mean you don't give an altar call and have people come down front and say the sinner's prayer? No. And people will say, well, how can people be saved? That's because they believe this section of scripture is a conditional system that they thought have always been in place. That idea is new. It's about 150 years old. And this is not a conditional system here at all. 
So when people come forward in this system and they are going through these steps, conditional steps, first of all, the gospel was not preached before that. Otherwise, they wouldn't have this system in place. That means they're calling upon a different Lord. They're confessing a different Lord than the one talked about in this text here. And the one that I talked about last week, the Lord, our righteousness, who accomplished salvation by his work. This system here, it's very, very subtle in that a lot of people are just, first of all, they're biased. They're just coming into this thing and it's a given like it. We just thought people just got saved by the altar call, sinner's prayer. I mean, how else? If you've brought, been brought up in that system, that's the way you think. You don't know any other way. And those people are sincere and they're excited about it. And they try to get other people to come up and they can think in their mind the day and the hour and the place where they went up, and did the prayer. And the preacher says, you know, you can be assured based on that time and place when you did that, whether you signed a card or you signed the inside of your Bible, you know, all these different things. All that is sincerity and it's zeal, but it's not according to the knowledge of the gospel. Sincerity does not replace the truth. Sincerity is just part of deception. So we'll stop there for, for now. Any comments or questions?